Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Core Console RX Podcast. I'm Mike Corvino. With me, as always, is Cole Swanson, and we have a super, super special guest today, Stephen, a.k.a. Page the PA via Instagram, <laughs> coming all the way from Atlanta. ATL. What's up, man? What's going on, guys? No, not a lot. Thanks for being on here, man. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Hey, it's a pleasure. I was super stoked to hear from you guys and really excited to be a part of it. Uh, we're happy too. So you're on which rotation right now? I'm on my second rotation, uh, which is emergency medicine. My first one was internal medicine. Nice. So I've got about two weeks left of emergency medicine, then it's on to psych. There you go. Oh, you're doing psych next? Yeah. That's nice. That's me. It's going to be a good one. It'll be good. It'll be interesting. I was originally supposed to have surgery, but um, clinical schedule got a little switched up. So I'm doing just like a consult service psych. So that'll be fun. Nice. Awesome. How much more time you got? When do you graduate? I'll graduate in December of this year. So awesome. That's that's cool, Getting man. There. Getting there. So tell me what, because the first time I saw, I don't even remember how I stumbled across your page the very first time. Um, you, I mean, you may have even just followed me. I don't know, but I remember seeing your page and seeing you were a student and is Instagram the only social media that you're on right now? Or do you, so I'm on, I like, I started on Instagram. Yeah. Gotcha. I think that was like where I really started to let it take off. Um, just cause I've always been into like photography and pictures and mm-hmm. I wasn't a huge fan of Facebook just with all the commentary that's out there. Yeah. So, um, I just really started with Instagram and just kind of evolved from there. Nice. So, you know, I'll see like a lot of these like physicians who are like, you know, been doing it for a minute and they pay off the, you know, to get followers and stuff. But so you're still in school, still going through rotations. So you're obviously working a ridiculous amount of hours and you've been doing this how long? Like what did you say? Four, five months, two months? Uh, I think it started like October, like September, October. Really? You got like 8,000 followers on there already. See, you're doing something right, man. You got something to say that people like. That's awesome. There's not a ton of PAs out there on social media. Um, So I think it's a pretty new market for PAs. I mean, PA is a pretty new profession. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just turned 50 last year. So, um, you know, I thought it was a cool way to put the message out there and start doing some advocacy and some education and just kind of show some perspective of what's like being a PA, PA student. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there's people interested for sure. Um, yeah, there's been PA schools popping up all over here. I mean, it started out with like two for a long time and they're coming. So it's mm-hmm. definitely a growing profession. Yeah. Um, the demand for like nurse practitioners and PAs is just through the roof right now. Right. So it's, you know, it's a nice little gap and um, there's a huge opportunity for us to get in there and fill some education and, you know, pick up some of the slack with all the healthcare demands that our country has. So yeah, why, it's cool. why do you it's a cool think time to be a PA. Why do you think it's growing? Where's, where's the need coming from in uh, like a day-to-day clinic basis? What do you think? Uh, I think it's more just like geographical. You keep hearing about the physician shortage that's been going on for how many years and uh, PAs are just a really... Um, you know, important provider that can fill a lot of the roles that, you know, um, you know, physicians in like rural areas can't, you know, you hear these like areas that have, you know, one doc for how many thousands of people just in these rural towns. And so um, you get PAs that you can get trained in a couple of years and, you know, they have a pretty full scope of practice depending on which doc they work for. And so you can throw a PA 
um, and they can act, you know, mostly um, as like what a doc would do. Yeah, very yeah, absolutely. autonomous. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. But how how did you decide? Like, were you, were you thinking about med school originally, or have you always been focused on being a PA, or what's what was? Kind yeah, of your... you know, I, I I got my undergrad in music. Really, uh, to, to be totally fair, <laughs> that's awesome. um, I was really into performing in the arts, and I got my degree in music and theater. And uh, I just kind of got caught up in the the stress of always having to like market yourself and there's a ton of politics and it's like one of those things that you like you have to be fully committed like in new york or chicago you know working three day jobs while you audition during the weekends or whatever and it just burned out and it felt just very like self-serving i wanted to do something a little more um i don't know humanitarian something that was not focused on myself but like helping other people yeah and so i just kind of fell into the medical stuff um, my brother was doing his wilderness EMT. Um, my best friend was a phlebotomist. Uh, her sister was a nurse. So I was just kind of getting hit at healthcare stuff from all angles. And I've always been interested in doing it. Like, I remember like you're like in middle school or like high school where they call like um, whatever, like first response team to the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they yeah. call it overhead. And like, you see like one kid, like run out of the classroom. Um, and you, you always like, you know, what's going on? Like what happened in the cafeteria? I've always <laughs> kind of been interested in that, but I never really pursued it. So once I was toward the end of college, I was like, man, I got to do something else for a while. So, um, you know, I graduated and like the next weekend I started EMT course and just like fell in love with it. Awesome. So, so you did EMT first? Yeah, that was like my first introduction into it. And then from there, I just, you know, I, I kept getting more interested and started doing more research and. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be in the medical field. Um, and so I just started taking all the prereqs for med school because I knew that that would kind of be all encompassing. And if I had all those, I could probably go any way I wanted to if I decided not to do med school. And so I was on the med school track and then I found out about PAs and what they do. And I was like, man, if I could go through PA school in like two, three years, come out with half the debt you know, accomplish all the things that I want to do in medicine as a PA, like, man, I don't need to go to med school. Yeah, for sure. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. No, that's awesome, man. Do, do you feel like, cause I know for me, like one of the main things that was kind of like my deciding factor, I guess, for going to pharmacy school was cause I was kind of originally thinking med school as well. Like I, mean, I was pretty set on med school when I was in undergrad. Um, and then like the mid junior year, I guess is when I really switched tracks and for me, it was it was the the idea that I could kind of jump into a bunch of different roles very easily. Whereas like in medicine, you still can jump in different things. But if you're a cardiologist, you can't get up one morning and go, you know what I'm, I'm going to do? I'm going to do pulmonology. See you guys later. Like you're just very you're very specialized. You're you and they have to they have so much training in that area, which is excellent. But you're kind of doing that forever. And I'm the kind of person that gets bored really easily. So for me, pharmacy was like I can jump into like. 15 different things. I mean, granted you have to have residencies and things for certain jobs, but you can do a lot. Do you, did you feel like that with, with uh, PAs at all? Cause I feel like that would be a little easier for you guys to maneuver and try out different stuff more so than uh, an attending, I guess. 100%. <laughs> when I, when I found out that PAs could work in, you know, multiple fields and switch without having to do a residency or anything like that, I was like, that that's it yeah i'm the same as you like I that's why i love working in the er because you can walk into one patient and have like an earache the next patient would be like a cardiac arrest your next patient's gonna be a drug overdose it's like it's very good for people with add just kind of like boom, yeah, boom, 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 boom all over the place so pa was like that was actually one of the big selling points and we always the big the term we use is lateral mobility mm -hmm. we have um 
this lateral mobility. So say once we graduate, we're basically general practitioners, just generalists. And then from there, we kind of get on the job training in whatever specialty we decide to do. And, you know, there's people that work multiple specialties at a time. I've got one professor who's like working IR um, pediatrics and like critical care. And then he's got a central line business on the side. And so oh, wow. that's like one of the huge perks of PAs. Like it's very, very flexible in what you can do. So like something for like you or me that, you know, have a ton of different interests and like things that we want to learn about it's it was just the perfect choice yeah that's awesome man that's great yeah my fiance Anne is uh, about to graduate pa school and that's one of the big things that she says all the time is that not only can you you know move laterally and go to different jobs and specialties but it's very much encouraged and very commonplace to work as a pa in one setting for three or four or five years and then just bounce over to something else and it's really easy so that's that's awesome it, for sure. But, you know, for people that like having that continuity and just want to focus That's and an specialize awesome and research the heck out of one thing and be experts like med school is definitely the route. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's, and that's the thing, like, and I never want to sound like I'm knocking it because I have so much respect for the amount of knowledge you have to have to be, say, a cardiologist that it's mind blowing to me that someone oh, has totally. studied it that in depth. But yeah, I, I do definitely like the flexibility and I could... I, I kind of I assumed that was the case with you with the PA thing. I just wanted to get your take on it. Um, what about uh, kind of going back to the social media thing? So there's a lot of stigma with social media, especially, I, you know, in my experience, and Cole, I'm sure you went through the same things. We, You know, in a couple months, we'll have graduated from the same school. Um, it's one of those things that a lot of the, the professors, the faculty, it really encouraged students to get rid of their social media, to block people, to, you know, whatever they need to do to not have any kind of, uh, any kind of, um, like, I guess, presence on social media because they don't want to, to look, make the school look bad or, or get the kids in trouble, whatever the case may be. What, what do you think about that? Like, how do you see that playing out 10 years from now when us horrible millennials take over? <laughs> it it's a slippery slope for sure i mean anything you put on the internet you know theoretically is there forever yeah. <laughs> and so when you're going to an institution and say so your your social media has their name you know branded all over it i mean unless you have a very clear like clause in your bio saying you know my opinions are not reflective of any institution i'm affiliated with it's like you're kind of branding that institution. So I can get their angle, but at the same time, you know, there's the freedom of speech and the freedom to express yourself and your opinions. So it, it, I'm not going to act like I'm an expert. I, I'm still trying to navigate it. Luckily, I haven't had in, too many issues, but I've had a couple of problems just with internet trolls um, that I've actually had to talk to my program director about a couple of times, but hmm. she's always been super supportive. So it, yeah, it's it's a slippery slippery slope for sure. Yeah, that's good. But I mean, you know, social media is like anything else. It can be good and bad, and people mm -hmm. can mess themselves up by putting stuff they shouldn't put on there. And that's just the way it is. Like you, you know, you could do that with a newspaper, probably. So. And that's the thing. It's it's also a matter of perspective. You know, you could post something with one intention or one idea, but someone misinterprets it and takes it a completely different way. And you know, slippery slope for sure. Yeah, here's I'm gonna give my take on it real quick, just as I want this on the record. Um, Do it. I truly believe that this this as you know we kind of take over things and in our generation sort of like 
goes forward. I think social media, because that's what we've always had and what we kind of grew up with, whereas the generation above us didn't really have that, and it's all new and, you know, world-ending world for them. Um, I feel like social media is going to actually end up being something that healthcare professionals can use to brand themselves on purpose because institutions are actually going to see that as a way of bringing in money and patients and students and things like that. And I, I truly believe that like eventually it's going to be like medical professionals. And again, professionals, I'm not saying idiots. Like I, like I don't <laughs> think the, you know, the Kardashians of the medical world are going to take over and you know, that's what I'm saying actual professionals, but branding themselves in a way that gets a big following. Cause if you, if you think about it, if you have for you, you have 7,000, what 8,000 followers, a lot of them are probably PAs or at least people interested in PA school. If that university or that hospital brings you in as one of the PAs and you're constantly talking about them, that's 8,000 people that they didn't weren't in front of before. I mean, they may have known, known about the school, but I mean, that's to me, I, I, I mean, it's like huge advertising and huge solid publicity again it's all relative because if you're if you're a jerk about it then obviously it's not going to work out but people who have are doing it with the good and with good intentions and just to promote medicine i feel like social media is going to be a huge tool here in the next 10 years no i think that's reasonable and uh, you obviously promote your school's brand well and back to a medical professional promoting themselves with the push for quality metrics especially for medicare we could do a whole podcast on medicare and the new quality metrics coming out for insurance companies especially with physicians um meeting those metrics is like it's now coming in like 2019 and 2020 um it'll follow them so it doesn't just it's not just associated with the institution it's associated with the actual the actual medical professional so if they are meeting the quality metrics, they have a good record and a good quote-unquote score, they can brand themselves and potentially get opportunities that way. And they can use social media for that and other avenues. But, yeah, it's very interesting. Oh. And I could be completely wrong, but if I'm not, I just really want to be like, yo, check this out. When I was 29, I said uh, this was going to happen, and look what happened. Boom, called it. It's on the. It's official now. <laughs> it's it's officially on the podcast. on the so. podcast, at least until iTunes kicks us off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, if you look at some of the people on Instagram, like some of the, like the dermatologists and surgeons, like they do brand their practice oh, 100%. and have procedures and all sorts of crazy things. Um, the but it, you, know, you have to make sure that you're abiding by HIPAA and there's just, it's a very fine, fine line. So, you know, as I kind of go through this journey and I'm still super new, um, just trying to like move slowly not grow too fast and just be very careful and um you know choose what i post wisely and you know, yeah. it's hard because you post something now that might have consequences five years from now sure. and so <laughs> it's yeah, a game yeah, gotta be careful. but I, it's, it's super important tool and i think a lot of the people that um follow me are like pre-med or pre-pa or pre-nursing or people in undergrad who are trying to figure out which route they want to go mm -hmm. and so a lot of people have heard about pas and heard some of the buzz um, I'm sure Cole, like with your wife, I'm sure she's talked about it a lot. Um, it's a really hot career and a lot of oh, people yeah. want to get into oh, it. And it's, it's super competitive. Oh, I, yeah. The last time I looked at the statistics, it's almost more competitive, if not more competitive, getting to PA school than it is medical school. I, I think it yeah, is more because competitive the demand now. is so high. Yeah, yeah I think that makes sense. My little like, brother's pre-PA and he's about to finish his sophomore year. 
And I'm telling them, you know, you got to get the hours. You got to get the patient contact hours because they look at that. You got to get extracurriculars. You got to have a good GPA because it's super competitive for sure. And you have to really differentiate yourself nowadays. I mean, it's easy. Well, it's not easy, but, you know, a lot of people can get good GPA, good GRE, mm. you know, good healthcare hours. Um, so you really have to be able to do volunteer things, yeah. do different side projects. Um, but a lot of what I do on social media is answering questions from pre-PAs like, hey, like, what's the best way to prepare for an interview? Like, hey, what's good healthcare experience I can get? Yada, yada, yada. So it's a really important and prominent educational tool, um, right. especially because we're such a connected generation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I admittedly, when I was looking into it, I was on YouTube all the time watching people's videos. You know, how am I going to get an edge? How am I going to get better? Because like, I want to get in. And so I think a lot of people are using YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, not just for like the social aspect, but for actually learning and trying oh, yeah. to figure out how to navigate, how to get into these schools. So it's, it's a kind of a cool opportunity to act as a mentor. And I didn't really think that was going to happen. But um, as soon as I got into it is just people asking questions all the time. And so it's kind of cool to lend a, you know, your two cents and I've helped a few people get in, which is cool. It's like a great feeling to see people be successful. Awesome. Um, and, and that's the thing too, man, like going back to like intent on people using social media and like whether or not it's a good thing or not, like, you know, you're in school, you're a super busy guy, like you got all this stuff going on and and I'll go through, I'll see like 200 comments on one of your posts and you, I feel like you answer every single one of them like back. Like, I mean, that's awesome. Like you clearly enjoy like talking to people, especially like people that look up to you and like they're under, you know, 21 year old kids that are looking at going to PA school and now they got a good influence to kind of go by. I just feel like that's, that's the best way possible to use social media. So I think it's a good, you're a, a solid example of that. And the content you put is interesting too. Like I was telling you, you know, when we were talking before we started recording, you know, you were putting that video up of you doing the uh, sutures and like nobody wants a pill pusher suturing them, but I was still just like, yeah, I need to learn that. That's awesome. <laughs> like it was, it was super cool. I mean, you know, stuff like that, that people don't think about, but you know, it's not just you taking a picture of your food. It's you actually showing the, the world of medicine. It's, it's cool. It's good. It's a cool, I appreciate it. It's, it's a cool uh, tool to be able to do something like that. Like, I don't know if you saw it, like my buddy, Nick and I, we did like an Instagram live session the other night mm -hmm. and that's all we did. Like he's a cardiac intervention specialist. And so he does like some suturing and has some like cool trips and tips that he's sharing with me. And so we just went on live and we had our suture pads set up and we were just practicing. It was, it was cool. Yeah, but, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, the thing that's, yeah. is, I always make the joke that, I'm, I'm like super introverted person. And so social really? media is sort of my way to be social without actually having to be social. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. No, it's good, man. Um, you're, you're killing it, especially for such a short amount of time. Like I think you need to slow down just so that I don't feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you can't grow too fast. It's someone, something someone told me you have to grow, you know, slowly. Otherwise you're going to get in over your head, but yeah. yeah, I was totally surprised and overwhelmed at the response that I've gotten, but it's awesome. And then one of the other really cool things is meeting, you know, like you and Cole, it's just, it's awesome networking, that uh, yeah. networking opportunity. Yeah, I agree. And, and that, people that's and talk the, to people that you normally wouldn't be able to. Exactly. Like, you know, we're in different states. You know, I've met um, the guy, Adam uh, Martin, that goes by the Fit Pharmacist on Instagram. You know, I saw him whenever I first started on there and I was like, oh, wow, this pharmacist got 12,000 followers or whatever it was. Oh, that's pretty cool. And then, like, eight months later, the dude's flying in an airplane to come stay at my house. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's crazy. He's from Pennsylvania. And yeah. same with uh, Rich from RX Radio in Miami. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
he came up. Yeah, he, like I, the first time I met him was me picking him up from his like Airbnb, and he was like, "What's up?" <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just it's a totally different, um, just a different world. You get to meet all these people and network with these professionals that you never would unless you were like going to a conference or something. And everybody's all burned out from listening to CE all day. And then, you know, it's just, it's a very relaxed environment to meet people who are trying to do innovative stuff in the world of medicine. It's, it's, it's cool. I like it. I'm, the, the, I'm good thing, to it. the good thing about being in Charleston is that everybody wants to come here. So we don't have to go anywhere. They're just going to, you know, meet us here. Miami, Pennsylvania, wherever. Yeah. But I'm we will, we would. I might try to go to Miami actually next month. Oh, okay. Conference well, awesome. Meet him down there. Miami's meet Rich down awesome. there. We'll see. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's cool, man. So, what's what's your game plan afterwards? Are you what, do you have a specialty that you're kind of thinking about, or are you gonna keep doing the page to PA full time and go on the road? <laughs> man, that's the million dollar question. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, they t- they say in clinicals that you find out what you don't want to do, and I'm definitely starting to learn that a little bit. Um, I I have an interest in ICU medicine, critical care. Um, and also surgery, but I haven't had those rotations yet. So I can't really speak knowledgeably about it or really tell you if that's something I want to do. Um, my background obviously is in emergency medicine. I did that for, I think five or six years. So I know that and it's comfortable and it's familiar. Um, but again, I'm not sure if I want to do something else. Um, in terms of page to PA, I, you know, I changed my mind with what I want to do with it daily. Sometimes I just want to make it like a general, like PA resource. You know, sometimes I just want to, you know, bury it and not worry about it just because social media can get crazy sometimes it's just you know the way people treat each other on there and some of the things people say and um you know it, it can be really nasty there's some you know really cruel people out there and so um i just don't like being a part of that so it's it's very like multi-dimensional but you know i'm not sure um we'll see what happens after clinicals ask me again in about you know seven or eight months yeah you got plenty more rotations to go through before uh, <laughs> before you have to make that decision so yeah. for sure cool but that's a cool thing. I, I can kind of go wherever and do whatever yeah. I'd like. That's the great thing about being PA. Yeah. Heck yeah. Um, you know, the other thing too that, that I, I like is, you know, and this, this isn't just in social media, but kind of in general, I feel like there's a very, every, every healthcare professional has its like little click, right? So like pharmacy sticks with pharmacy a lot of times. PAs, I'm sure stick with PAs, MD, stick with MD. And like, they're very, you know, especially like outside of being on rounds, like a lot of times it's very clicky and um, I see that a lot on social media too. You can kind of, kind of see it in there where like most people that are following me are, are farm, farm D majors or like you try or current pharmacists or whatever. And um, what I, what I liked is like, you know, like when, as soon as I contacted you, it was like, Oh yeah, man, let's do it. Like, cool. That'd be awesome. PA farm D like working on stuff. Like let's, you know, let's get a podcast going. And you were just super open about that. Um, do you feel like promoting interprofessionalism is, is important? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like when I saw what you guys were doing, I was just so on board with it. I'm a huge advocate for interprofessionalism and teamwork. And I mean, it's just, healthcare is 100% about taking care of the patient. And it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're a janitor health, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. Like we all have the same goal, right? We have different, you know, areas of expertise, but we're all there to do the same thing. And so I just don't view as a hierarchy at all. Mm -hmm. And so even on Instagram, like that's 
one of my favorite things probably is just being able to interact with doctors and nurse practitioners and CNAs and just like jobs I've never even heard of. Yeah. Um, partly for the educational, but just like the camaraderie and you get a different perspective, like seeing what you guys do. Like I've learned so much about pharmacy and honestly, like seeing you guys like go out into the community and do like diabetes education. Like this is all stuff that I had no idea that pharmacists really did. Like when I see, think of pharmacists, I'm just like, you know, the guy at Walmart, like just passing out drugs. Yeah. Um, and that's just because I haven't really been exposed to many pharmacists. So this mm -hmm. is like an incredible opportunity to see more about what you guys do and how, um, you guys kind of go through and do things more than just, you know, doling out medications. You're like super integral in patient education and, you know, just the whole list of things. And so being able to know this, like when next time I have an interaction with the pharmacist, I can be like, Hey, I know you guys sometimes do this. And, you know, it can just lead to places that will provide the patients with better care ultimately. And like, that's the name of the game. For right? sure. Yeah. 100%. Use us, utilize us, ask us questions. And pharmacist. like vice versa. I mean, yeah. you guys kind of hear in like perspective of a PA student, like maybe that'll shape your perspective on Absolutely. Um, Mike. I know you're like, you're an adjunct professor. And so, you know, maybe there's some stuff we could talk about that, you know, my experience with pharmacology and PA school <laughs> has been rough um, <laughs> and always happy to share, you know, my opinion and my experience with that and how maybe you can make it, you know, better when you're teaching your students. Yeah, for sure. And I, and, I'm definitely gonna be picking your brain about that because you know I'm getting started here in a couple of weeks like officially like they're this is the first class the school's had like it's brand new and I, I'm literally the only non PAMD that's that's there like when they brought me in I was so so excited because I didn't think there's a chance in heck they were actually gonna let me teach this class um, and not only that but then I, I really kind of I kind of anticipated them being like well this, you know he's 20 years younger than we are and there's just no way like we can take them seriously and I was just kind of like really watching what I said because I don't want to offend anybody I, I mean one I have a ton of respect for the amount of clinical knowledge somebody who's been a PA for 20 years has and two you know I just you know I'm the new guy I don't want to just like step on toes or come off as arrogant and they the, every PA that I inter interacted with there is like the nicest person I've ever met in my life and has been I made a couple comments about like a, uh, they had a test question circled as the right answer. And I was like, I don't know if I'd put that, you know, there. And I was like, oh shoot, where am I? I'm sh I should open my mouth. And he's like, yeah, man, that's why we brought you in here. <laughs> and I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a cool group. I mean, I was, I was excited and took this, took this on really honestly just for the networking and to get the experience with other healthcare professionals on a daily basis. Um, and the students too, cause I want to give, you know, my perspective as a pharmacist and the, the evidence-based medicine to the students so that they have that directly going in and they can take evidence-based medicine into their clinic. I mean, they're the one, you guys are the ones writing the prescriptions. I'm not. And so I, pharmacists, pharm, you know, pharmacists can know all the evidence-based medicine they want, but if they don't have a good relationships where the providers trust them, then what's the point? And so I, I think that uh, the CSU thing is something I'm extremely excited about just because I, it's just such a good opportunity that I am still kind of shocked that I get to do, but yeah, I'm very, yeah, very excited great. about that. That's story. Great. One of our best, one of my favorite lectures was actually one of our PharmDs who came in and um, through our didactic year, the way our school does it was we break it up into like organ-based system modules. So we'll have like cardiology, pulmonology, mm -hmm. psychology, or psychiatry, whatever. Um, and so he'll come in during each module and just kind of go through, you know, the core meds, 
um, for each organ system that we're studying. And he's just like this really smart dude and like understands the physiology and knows what we need to know mm -hmm. um, as, you know, just first line clinicians. Right. Uh, obviously like a smart dude who can like give you studies and trials for right. everything he talks about, um, but gives like presents it to us like in a very matter of fact, like, right. you know, these are your gold rules for COPD. Like this is what you need to do. This is what you need to know without right. like, you know, completely just overwhelming us yeah. which most of us feel when we're studying pharmacology i mean well you got you guys have so much information coming at it. i mean it's just it's a lot of school and a lot of information is slammed into what two and a half years it's it's crazy like like trying to like write the curriculum for the pharmacology class that i'm teaching was like insanity to me i was like there's so much information i'm gonna have to talk like an auction year to get all this stuff out i mean you guys have you guys have a lot of stuff to memorize in a really short amount of time. And I, I definitely have a lot of respect for it, for sure, because it would be rough. Yeah, they call it med school on crack. Yeah, there you go. Because, <laughs> you know, when we walk into a room and see a patient, we're essentially expected to see, treat, diagnose, and care for a patient, mm -hmm. just the same as a physician would. Um, obviously, we don't go nearly as in-depth as physicians do or like y'all do. Um, but we touch, you know, a big chunk of medicine. So yeah, you got to talk fast and pay yeah. attention. No, I mean, you, you guys are, I mean, I, like I said, I have a ton of respect for what PAs do. I mean, you guys are, I've, I've seen some PAs that are like, oh my gosh, this dude's a rock star. I mean, yeah, you guys are, you guys are doing, doing big things, but, um, cool, man. So you want to uh, jump in this patient case and yeah, so we, we will actually talk about medicine on this podcast yeah. at some point. No, it's cool. That's the best thing about the podcast. Is we don't have a set time. We'll we can talk do whatever forever. we want. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right. So the patient case today. Well, can I introduce it? Oh yeah, that's right. Do your history. I thing. have. I have a little history lesson. That's right. All right. Quick. Cole's our new. It's a historian. It's this new segment we call Cole the Historian. History with Cole. Yeah. It's fun. We're still working on the title, but after that, all we need is a uh, time machine. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. You need some theme music. Right. We do. I'm going to insert some theme music some. here. We'll say. Okay, pause for music. Yeah. Okay, we're good. All right, Mike. Yes. Have you ever heard of apoplexy? Have I ever heard of it? Yes. Uh, it's okay. I had until yesterday. Don't feel like I have. That's all right. It's a Greek word. Okay. Um, not anymore is it a condition, but it's a Greek word meaning struck down by violence. Huh? And that is uh, the original name for stroke. Hmm. coined about 2400 years ago by none other than hippocrates the father of medicine uh, he called it apoplexy because people would just kind of die and they didn't know why um, they would have paralysis and a change in well-being is what he called it and then die and they didn't know why hmm. so they just called it apoplexy for a long time till around the mid 1600s some dude named jacob webfer uh, figured out that apoplexy was called by, caused by a brain bleed and could also be caused by a blockage uh, of blood flow to the brain. And that's where they were like, oh, so this is a stroke. But they still don't call it that. They still called it apoplexy. It wasn't until like 100 years ago, like 1928, when they finally divided it into uh, ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke and coined it cerebrovascular accident, CVA, and finally stopped calling it apoplexy, from what I understand at least. And that is where we get the term stroke. It's actually pretty recent. Hmm. That is pretty good. So where there's some trivia for you. Uh, this is from <laughs> Johns Hopkins. Huh. Yeah. Because the one you did on COPD the other day, I was like, where, where is he finding this stuff? I can't remember where that one was from. 
I don't know. <laughs> I do. I do back it up by some other sources, but this is this is John Johns Hopkins. Yeah. This this seems they, to be pretty well known. So people see, listening, you may reliable. already know this. Yeah, seems legit. It's got Hippocrates in there. It's got to be legit. Definitely legit. So cool. That was good, man. Thanks. Awesome. So uh, the case today uh, is KB, seventy year old female that presented to the ED at 0700 hours on 115 complaining of left-sided weakness she had a um she was currently taking Zeralto and she was also on aspirin 81 milligrams as well uh she was feeling normal the night that she went to bed on 114 but then it woke at 0400 hours and with slurred speech uh, left-sided weakness she denies any kind of headache, blurred vision, fever. Uh, she doesn't have any seizure activity. She does have a past medical history of AFib and arrhythmia. And she's currently taking uh, Zeralto, like I said, for uh, stroke prevention. Um, she's also on Tylenol because she has minor osteoarthritis. Um, she's on 81 milligram aspirin. She's also taking calcium carbonate, 600 milligrams. She's taking two of those every day um, along with her vitamin D. She's doing 2,000 units, two tablets daily, uh, the B12 daily. She's on metoprolol 25 for rate control for her AFib. And then she was also on an estradiol norethandrone, uh, which is a, a hormone replacement a tablet that they were a little bit concerned about too because the estradiol component mm -hmm. can also promote clots. So basically when she arrived, um, it was ruled, and I won't go through all this because we're going to post the, the case. Yeah, we'll post it to the website for those of you who um, want to look at it. But if you're in your car or whatever and you can't access it through a website, don't freak out. Don't tune out. We will reference whatever we're specifically talking about. So you're okay. Keep listening. <laughs> there you go. So um, they did rule it as a, an ischemic stroke, and um, they went. They actually did do a mechanical thrombectomy. She was not a candidate for TPA because of the Zeralto. Um, they did do a mechanical thrombectomy though uh, with stent retriever, and one of the there's there's different ways of kind of going about this, and and I'm by no means an expert in this, so I probably shouldn't even address it, but that's okay. Um, the American Heart Association they basically give it a you, they make the patient a candidate if they meet all of these criteria. And that's the, the pre-stroke MRS score of either zero or one. They have to have a um, occlusion of the internal carotid artery uh, or the MCA segment one. Um, they also have to be above 18 years old. They have to have a, let's see, a NIHSS score of six or greater, aspect score of greater six or greater, and then... Um, they have to be able to start treatment through a going puncture within six hours of symptom onset. So there's a, several studies that they mentioned in the trials. Uh, Mr. Clean, Escape, there was a bunch of them. I like Mr. Clean. That's a cool <laughs> trial name, so I put that down. But uh, lots of lots of trials. They, they recorded like 10 of them that showed benefit. So basically big things with this lady. She's 70 years old, so she's elderly. She's coming in with symptoms of an acute ischemic stroke. She has an acute ischemic stroke, history of AFib. So that's, right. that's the big thing. That's the big takeaways we're going to focus on. So, Steve, if you're seeing somebody like this present to the ED, so we're looking at her on discharge. We're, we're looking over her chart before she's discharged. But when she presents, if you see her, what's what's the first thing you're doing? What are you thinking? 
Sure. So even, I got to admit, when I first read just the, the first subjective paragraph, I just thought clot, clot, clot. This, yeah. this lady's a walking clot, whether it's in her lungs or legs or carotids or brain, um, just because she has all these risk factors, AFib, mechanical valve replacement, she's a hat, and that was within what, a couple weeks prior. Um, she's taken estrogen or what, estradiol, she's taken hormones. Uh, she's a smoking history. I mean, diabetes, she just got all these risk factors that just, she's a clot waiting to happen. And so I, as I kept reading through, I was just kind of wondering what, how it was going to manifest. Um, but, you know, the first thing you said was left side weakness. And so when someone comes in with any sort of neurological complaint, like in the ER setting, at least you want to figure out what's going to kill them first, hemorrhagic right. stroke, um, ischemic stroke, is she hypoglycemic? Um, you kind of go through your DDX and you just knock off each one. But, you know, this is, she presented with, you know, unilateral weakness. I don't know if she had slurred speech or if she had any sort of facial droop, but, uh, you know, there's all these big stroke scores that I admittedly am not super familiar with. I haven't dug too deep into neurology. Um, but it sounds like, yeah, she was worked up pretty quick and found had an ischemic stroke. And so you kind of got to act quickly because brain is tissue, or I'm sorry, uh, time is tissue. Right, right. And so, you know, with a stroke, you got to figure out is it ischemic or is it hemorrhagic um and then if it is ischemic is she a candidate for thrombolytics um or a clot removal like she we had in this case um, or what have you and so that's kind of like the process that right. we go through just on the front end um you know she's taking all these meds i mean we'll get to that later on but you know in the emergency setting we just want to see you know what's going to kill them first how do we stop it Right. So for you, before we know it's an ischemic stroke and she's coming in this way with the left-sided weakness, clearly some sort of stroke, are you automatically giving her aspirin or and then moving on? Or are you waiting to find out if it's ischemic or hemorrhagic? Um, I mean, just anecdotally, yeah, I'd probably give her some aspirin. Yeah, I think that's pretty standard. Um, I, yeah, I mean, like for a chest pain patient, like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not sure if you guys heard the Mona, the mnemonic yeah. for like morphine, oxygen, mm -hmm. nitrates, aspirin. Aspirin's yeah. the only one proven to um, decrease uh, mortality. Yep. And so in her case, I don't think an aspirin is going to hurt her. So, you know, anecdotally, I'd probably yeah. give her an aspirin. No, I agree. I mean, that's sure. if, if they come in, yeah, they're just, they're giving them an aspirin and whatever else happens after that just kind of happens. So one of the things after they kind of got her stable, they started her on uh, 325 milligrams of aspirin instead of 81 milligrams. And they were going to do that until they could start the warfarin. Um, they stopped the Xarelto and switched over to warfarin. Uh, and they did that because they thought the Xarelto was obviously ineffective because she had a stroke. So one thing to consider, and, and again, you know, not that that's wrong. It's probably, probably the right thing and probably what a lot of people would agree to do. But one of the things to consider is, is the patient has AFib. And so if we look at the study, the, the Rocket AF study that Xeralto was compared directly to warfarin um, and showed, showed non-inferiority and all that. One of the caveats to that study is apparently the devices that they were using to register INRs were actually recalled at some point after <laughs> the study. And so there was some discrepancy there about whether or not they were actually dosing the warfarins too high and people were becoming over anticoagulated. And uh, if that's the case, we, you know, obviously may have tweaked the results a little bit. Now they went back and they've done kind of uh, reassessments and things like that. And they say, no, 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 everything's good. The data is good. But 
I don't know. I I still feel there's something big like that that can kind of put a damper on the date a little bit. But um, the other thing to consider is that Eloquist, a Pixaban, mm-hmm. is actually you know it's been compared to Warfarin as well uh, in the Aristotle trial, and it was actually superior to Warfarin um, in patients with AFib, and it uh, had less side effects, less uh, I believe it was intracranial hemorrhage, I believe. Yeah. So they had lower rates of bleeding, and they had a greater reduction in the rate of stroke than warfarin which you know for the most part the rest of them are just non-inferior pretty much across the board so that's uh that's not too bad it'd be be something to consider too so if you if the if the patient for instance was absolutely not coming back for inr follow-ups you knew there was no way you're gonna be able to follow for inr um eloquist would probably be my recommendation to switch to just it's got a little bit better data and the only thing is that it is twice a day so we have to see how she'd be as far as adherence but she's taking the metoprolol twice a day so I think it'd be okay. Right. I think she can handle it. If it one know, of the things we were oh, good. If it's covered by insurance, maybe they preferred Zarelto and mm-hmm. now she can't afford it, so they want to do Warfarin. Um, but if it is, that's definitely an option. What were you gonna say? Uh just we were talking earlier. One of the things I'm just kind of thinking in the back of my head is if if she just did have a stroke, you know, um, how's it affecting her cognitive behavior? Is she still going to be, you know, able to take her meds? One of the big things we see um, in this population is polypharmacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, geriatrics, sometimes they don't know what pills they're taking. They've got so many. And so a lot of times we get um, overdoses or patients with altered mental status, and we have no idea why. And it's kind of hard to really go down that list of differential diagnosis until we get that med list and see, oh, man, this person's taking 15 medications. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, I think that's part of the reason the beers criteria was developed is to start knocking off medications that patients um, in this age range don't necessarily need to be on. Um, And so what I'm thinking is, you know, if we give her one of these NOAX or DOAX, what do you call them? um, You know, say they do polypharmacy, how are we going to reverse that? I know there's been some controversy and trials about um, what is it? Anexa. Yeah. The reversal agents you mean? Yeah, and so um, obviously, like with someone with warfarin overdose and popping some vitamin K or what have you, yeah. Um, if someone's like super um, over anticoagulated and they're hemorrhaging, you know, what's the risk to benefit ratio for we're giving yeah, them, right. you know, a warfarin versus a rivaroxaban or what have you? So that's yeah. always a consideration, and they have um, a way that you can kind of gauge their risk of bleeding. It's called the Has Blood Score. Um, it doesn't really direct you in any particular way, but you can see what, you know, their risk of bleeding is overall. Um, I mean, she's she's doing okay, relatively speaking. I mean, she does have, um, I mean, she really doesn't have much as far as past medical history goes. She doesn't even have hypertension. Um, so, that you know, that's positive in terms of her bleed risk. Is it reasonable to assume that um, Eloquist, based on its um, half-life, would probably reverse faster than a rivaroxaban as far as anticoagulation wearing off. This is this is not mm-hmm. evidence based. This is cold thinking. That that I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think you can take that to the bank. But that's just me thinking about it. Because I mean, I, I you, as soon as you start that and Zeralto, you're immediately anticoagulated. So I don't know yeah. that that would be quicker to reverse it. But I don't know that one. What we'll that's. Yeah, oh, and, somebody's much smarter than me about that one. And Dabigatran does have a reversal agent that came mm-hmm. out. I think it's Digibine. Yeah, is I the, believe is what it's called. The generic like Idir Ucizumab or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not even gonna try. Anyways, I don't remember. It, it one, has one of the one, maps, yeah, one of the monoclonal antibodies. <laughs> right, yeah. but Edoxaban, yeah. um, Rivaroxaban, and and uh, and um, 
Eloquist and Pixaban. Pixaban don't have reversal agents. Yeah. Um, and so my question for you guys is when we get to this patient and we're doing, you know, their, their med rack and, you know, getting ready and getting ready for them to go home. Uh, what's your role and how do you, how do you kind of determine what the patient gets? Like, does the physician consult you? Do you guys have much say is like, Hey, this person should probably be on warfarin versus also like, what's your role in, I guess. Um, right. You go ahead. Good, no, good. So my experience, yeah, they would if if we're if they have a pharmacist on the team, which I think is great to have, by the way. Um, then they'll Job security. They'll generally ask. A lot of times, cards might be involved. So if cards is involved, they usually handle that. Um, but if it's like a family medicine team who's handling it, or if you are the pharmacist on the cards team, um, then they might ask you. And so I would look at this patient and say, okay, so it's between a a NOAC and warfarin. Things to consider with warfarin. They're going to have to have follow-up, very frequent follow-up, uh, potentially every month, you know, depending. If you can't get their INRs um, consistent, then they might have to follow up like every week or something with someone outpatient. So that's a consideration. So you'd have to say, okay, is uh, does she have transportation? Does she have good support from her family who could get her there? Uh, there's also dietary considerations. Um, what's her diet like? Is she going to be able to take warfarin and have steady INRs? Um Warfarin is cheap, so that's good. So if, if um, money was an issue, then that's a consideration there. Uh, with the NOAX, you know, if, if there's no way for her to uh, get it paid for, then that's probably not an option for her. But if mm -hmm. she can, um, it's simple. There's no follow-up. Some um, doctors want to follow up, like, in the first few months just to make sure that uh, their hemoglobin and hematocrit's okay, their creatinine clearance is okay, and they're not having, like, AKI or something like that, or they're not having some type of bleed. So they'll monitor that sort of thing. Um, but otherwise it's pretty low maintenance. You just take it and you're good to go. So that, that is brought up a lot about the fact that there's no reversal agents. So that is a consideration. Um, but if you don't think that this lay, I don't, I don't particularly put her at a super high risk of a bleed, um, just relatively speaking. Um, so I would feel comfortable and probably recommend a NOAC for her if that was going to be paid for by your insurance. Yeah. And I think too, the, as far as the pharmacist's role in this particular patient, as she's leaving the hospital, I would say that it would be very good if the pharmacist would actually sit down with the patient and spend the time going over their meds. Um, nurses are really good about that as well. Um, and then if, you know, if, if we're worried about polypharmacy, so if like, let's say she has her auto refills left on, on her profile at the pharmacy she fills at, um, or she's not all the way there as far as cognitive function, you know, making sure that the pharmacist calls and speaks to the pharmacist at the, you know, dispensing pharmacy and has them cancel the prescriptions and kind of go the extra mile to make sure. Because one of the big misconceptions is that you know, are the pharmacists at the, at the actual dispensing pharmacy are just going to be able to kind of read the play. But when one, they're, you know, with the heavy patient volume, a lot of times stuff gets overlooked when patients are coming in, maybe they don't even see the patient. And two, you know, we, it's hard to be able to know what was going on or, you know, we don't see labs. We don't see anything. We don't see any, anything that was going on or why things were stopped. And so the patient a lot of times doesn't remember. So having that contact is, is I think pretty important, even if it's pharmacist to pharmacist, just to like, you're going to be filling the prescription. You're going to be counseling them again when you give them this new prescription. You know, here's what's going on. Just to kind of fill them in would be, you know, it's, it's something that very, very, very rarely happens, but it would be great if it did more. 
And so not only on just our personal opinions, the I believe it's the chess guidelines came out recently, and um, I'm pretty sure it was for VTE, but they're recommending um, DOAX over warfarin for uh, treatment of DVT. And I think in general, it's kind of trending that way um, to prefer DOAX over warfarin. They haven't come out explicitly and said, yeah, an AFib, you definitely want to do DOAX over warfarin, but for VTE they have, and, and I think that eventually it'll the data will um will point them in that direction. And this is totally like a I'm gonna do a two second side note, but just for if there's students listening or whatever, um, one of the most important things as a pharmacist when you're speaking to a provider is to be respectful. I, I've seen preceptors, I've seen pharmacists who have this idea that I'm a PharmD, I'm the drug expert, you better listen to me. It's like, well, it's their license that they're prescribing, and it's just so mind-blowing that people can have that kind of arrogance coming out, and they, no one's going to respond to that. I wouldn't respond to somebody like that if they came to me, and I've, I've worked with one pharmacist, one preceptor that I had that was the exact opposite. He's a young guy. He's probably the youngest guy on the team. Um, he'll probably be on the podcast here in a few weeks, and literally, I've never seen more respect from attendings than I've ever seen towards him. I mean, they would go to him for everything. The residents, I mean, they went to him for everything because he's such a humble guy and always approaches the situation that way. That And he's proven himself because now they've gotten to know him and now they go to him for everything. There's respect there. Uh, but there's, I feel like that's an issue sometimes as pharmacists because we, we're we not like quote-unquote healthcare providers. We get crapped on sometimes. And so like there's this like feeling of like, I got to show you I'm a PharmD and prove my worth and blah, blah, blah. And I, I think that's just a horrible way to going, going about it. Agreed. So when, yeah, I think humility in medicine is undervalued for sure. The what? I, I think humility in medicine mm. is highly yeah. undervalued. A hundred percent. That is an interprofessional skill is, um, is pride. I yeah. would say Everett's across all professions that they're, there's prideful healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. For sure. And then that, just coming back to like just the core concept of, you know, it's a team, like we all have our own like specialties. Like if I have a question about a medicine, like I'm going to go to you guys and like, I expect you guys to, you know, know it all because that's your, that's your bread and butter. That's what you do every day. Like who else am I going to go to? Like, what do I know? Like I can get up on the up, up to date or Dynamed and look at a trial, but this is what you guys live, sleep and breathe. So, you know, there's no way I'm going to sit here and try to tell you how to do your job. I'm going to come to you guys with all my questions. Hey, Dynamed is good though. So if you don't have access yeah. to one of us, Dynamed's trustworthy. Dy- Dynamed's pretty solid. <laughs> I like, I like up to date too, but just don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's cool. And it's the same thing with, with you guys. Like, yeah, you know, the, the, the idea of, it's like, oh, I can't believe they don't just do this with the meds. And it's like, okay, well, you go diagnose that person. Let me know what you come up with. Yeah, let's see how your physical exam turns out, Farmy. You know, I think. Well, you think with meds, so much of it's just like point and click. You know, the dose is already in there. Like everything's all like at least in hospital systems. Yeah. You know, a lot of it's just like here's your propanolol, here's your insulin. It's just like all point and click, and so you know, a lot yeah. of that stuff's taken care of for us, and so. Yeah. So moving forward, so people are hopefully not tuning us out by now, but now that we're just <laughs> just kind of wrapping a little bit, but that's pretty fun. So um, as far as her uh, AFib and just controlling her heart rate, her heart rate right now is controlled. Um, you know, we used to push the, the heart rate down to 80 in AFib, but then the RACE2 trial came out. I uh, showed there wasn't necessarily a benefit in that unless they have symptomatic AFib. So currently we typically treat patients with AFib to a heart rate of 
goal of 110. And if they're still having symptoms, then we push it down to 80 at that point. Yeah. Um, Good. That's the race two. And the race one, um, just for your knowledge, showed that rate control is essentially non-inferior to rhythm control. Uh, controlling the rhythm, a lot of the drugs involved in that uh, have a lot of adverse side effects where some of the rate control ones don't as much. Um, so generally these days, people are first line. They're going to try rate control over rhythm control. Yeah. And, um, and the, uh, the Affirm trial was the other one um, that compared rate to rhythm. And um, Affirm is one of those things that you're always taught, at least we were taught in school, you know, okay, Affirm proves that rate is not inferior to rhythm and has less side effects and is better. Um, there is definitely some controversy. Um, I think there was a study that came out, I believe it was called Reaffirm, and it was kind of like a, a second look at, uh, at the Affirm trial. But it was saying that there was a... Um, saying that basically maybe some of the the effect like the patients that were in the uh rhythm control wouldn't actually qualify in a real setting for rhythm control so maybe um we if we had saved the rhythm control for the more sick patients we actually would have seen the benefit um that's a very very way overly simplistic way of putting it but um i think it kind of goes back to what we always talk about is, is looking at it as a patient specific thing and not just saying yep afib cool control the rate because we don't need to control the rhythm like you have to treat it by patient to patient see what's best for that particular patient look considering drug drug interactions whatever else they're on comorbidities and then go into that I, I think that too often it's just yep affirm rate go rate and then go rhythm if you can't do rate so just something to consider um yeah. and as far as her anticoagulation goes um, we forgot to mention that there is one integral part of deciding whether you're going to anticoagulate or not is the um, the Chad's VAS score. So I won't yeah. go too in-depth on that, um, but essentially it's an acronym um, stating risk factors for stroke, um, one of those being a history of previous stroke, mm -hmm. which she now has, uh, which gives her two points. So two points automatically is anticoagulation. automatic anticoagulation. If you have one point, um, you can make a decision uh, towards anti towards anticoagulation or not. You can choose aspirin or anticoagulation. If they're low bleed risk, I know a lot of people are going to choose an anticoagulant, you know, like warfarin or a NOAC. Um, that being said, women have to have a score of two because uh, being sex category is the SC at the end there. Uh, and being female automatically makes you higher risk of having a stroke. So that gives you one point. Um, so does that mean all females are going to be anticoagulated? No, so if it, their only risk factor is being a female, then the recommendations are they don't have to have any coagulation necessarily. Um, yeah. So yeah. I think the recommendations are you'd have to be a female, then have an additional risk factor, and then you're automatically anticoagulated. Yeah, being a female is not a, a modifiable risk factor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it depends who you talk to. <laughs> so um, that's definitely a good point. I'm glad you brought that up, Cole. That's that's solid. Um, so the other thing is, too, if we were going to keep this patient on warfarin, they started to put her on heparin and then discontinued it at discharge. Um, one thing to consider, now, the reason why a lot of times they bridge uh, with either heparin or anoxaparin when you're giving warfarin, um, the thought process behind it is basically the warfarin is vitamin K-dependent clotting factors, and so all of those clotting factors will start to to downregulate because you're, you're blocking the vitamin K receptors. But you have your natural 
anticoagulants, your your antithrombin, your protein C, protein S, all those get wiped out first because they have a shorter half-life. And so you're actually in a, a um, hypercoagulable state at first. And so they, they bridge with uh, anoxaparin uh, or heparin in order to get you to a therapeutic INR and then take you off. This lady, though, however, is because she's got AFib, the bridging really only becomes a, a factor when it's it's a, a DVT, um, VT. You don't have to necessarily bridge in this patient with, with warfarin. So that's not, it's not necessarily recommended to do it in um, patients with uh, AFib. So that's probably why they went ahead and stopped that uh, as she was leaving. Right. And with DOACs like Xarelto um, and Eliquis, you definitely don't have to, yeah. to bridge. It's essentially instant anticoagulation within you know, a matter of hours. So. Um, so for this heparin 500 that she's on inpatient, was this just VTE prophylaxis? I, I well, I, I they didn't really say, and yeah. so I don't know. You would assume though that's the prophylactic dose, yeah. 5,000 units Q8. So, um, yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. So yeah. if someone comes in and you put them on this heparin prophylaxis, prophylaxis, and they need to go back to warfarin, will you still use your bridge therapy, heparin to warfarin, and in this the setting sort of, of like a DVT? I'm sorry. In the setting of like a DVT where you would need to bridge. No, like in this setting where we have, yeah. you know, ischemic stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, probably not in this because it, it's usually, like I said, usually only used in, um, in uh, DVT. But I, again, I don't deal with this enough to to, to and there may be cases where the, the cardiologist does want them on that. So um, that would definitely be something that we would have to get cardiology to consult on. Right. Maybe if they were like super high risk of recurrent stroke within that time frame, um, maybe they would want them to bridge. But I think like the general recommendations, you know, um, you don't have to, but it's patient specific. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is a lot of times they'll start warfarin a week or two later. Um, so that you reduce the risk of it converting over to a hemorrhagic stroke. Mm-hmm. So they stay on aspirin 325 and then they come off that in two weeks when they start the warfarin. So the way her discharge was written, it kind of looks like they're starting aspirin and then starting warfarin at the same time, which would be unnecessary unless she you know, had stents placed or something like that. Right. So if she had some type of coronary artery disease, yeah. like a stent, that's when you would consider um, extra antiplatelet coverage. But since she doesn't, it's just AFib. The anticoagulation essentially covers, covers her for um, both AFib and the history of stroke. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is the atorvastatin 80, they started her on, um, and then stopped it as they discharged her. Mm. Um, Cole, you want to talk about Sparkle? Sure. Um, so the Sparkle trial was essentially patients post-stroke who were started on high dose atorvastatin, atorvastatin 80 versus placebo. Um, and the outcomes were good. Um, they wanted to see if aggressive lipid lowering therapy would reduce rates of stroke. Um, recurrent stroke reduced rates of yeah. recurrent stroke right secondary prevention um, and it did and um, it reduced rates of stroke and it also reduced rates of major cardiovascular events um, in patients who didn't have C- CHD yeah. um, so that's good and the other thing is too it it did that in ischemic stroke so hemorrhagic stroke actually was um, a little bit slighter chance bigger chance of bleeding so they it's it's ischemic stroke specifically that you're looking for a tour of 80 um, so I don't know if she's having maybe maybe she's having uh, side effects or something with it. I, I don't really know the reasoning for the stopping, but she still technically would be a candidate 
or the atorvastatin. It doesn't have any drug-drug interactions with what she's on. Right. And just so you all know, the number needed to treat um, to reduce an event in that trial was 53 over about five years. So that's a pretty good number needed to treat. Yeah. Um, have we covered everything? Um, so real quick, the calcium carbonate that she's on, this is just a kind of a tiny side note. It's on 600 milligrams, um, two tablets. Um, when she came in, she was on two tablets a day. Uh, she needs to separate that and be on six ta or 600 milligrams twice a day. You can only absorb about 600 milligrams of calcium at a time. So if you have somebody you're putting on like 1,200 milligrams, it's it's probably a waste. Um, the other thing is is the vitamin D. She is getting elderly. Her kidney function looks good, but uh, she definitely probably should be evaluated. Get a vitamin T or a, a, a vitamin T. Vitamin T. A that's vita the new vitamin. That's the new vitamin. Came out a, in 2018. Uh, yeah. You heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> vitamin D level and um, seeing, make sure that she's not deficient in that. And then if she is, uh, possibly seeing phosphorus, parathyroid, all those labs to make sure something else isn't going on. Yeah. What if both of her levels are good? Does she need it? If what? If her if vitamin D and calcium levels are good, what do you think? I think if her if her vitamin D is fine as well, then that's that's not a big deal if her kidney, her kidney function is fine. I think if her kidney function is low or, you know, the GFR is low and the vitamin D is low, the calcium is normal, that she may be having like renal osteodystrophy and breaking down some of the, the bone and getting the calcium from that. So I would definitely def pull parathyroid hormone and phosphorus things. Sure. Labs at that point. Yeah. There's a little controversy over the, um, the benefit of like just sticking everybody on, um, calcium sure. and vitamin D when yeah. they're, you know, um, postmenopausal and that sort of thing but i don't know the answer so yeah. if y'all do let us know yeah. um, i did want to bring up quickly so her blood pressures are pretty soft um let me tell y'all what it is for those who um aren't do not have the case up but her most recent ones were like 110 over 69 110 over 71 so pretty soft that might just be because she's in the hospital for whatever reason but let's assume that she had hypertension um the or even if she didn't have hypertension and she could tolerate it. Um, there are some good medications that you can put patients on post-stroke that we have some good data behind. Um, one is from the SHEP trial. There's chlorthalidone, um, low-dose chlorthalidone, reduce rates of recurrent stroke. Um, there's also the PROGRESS trial. That was a combination of an ACE and a thiazide. It was, um, and dapamide was the thiazide-like diuretic in that trial. And uh, perindopril was the ACE. And so the combination of an ACE and thiazide reduced rates of recurrent stroke. So that's and the progress trial. The, and no, it was the only the combination. Right. They so they, they separate. It was, it was um, perindopril plus or minus endapamide. So some patients only had perindopril. They separated them out at the end. The perindopril group didn't reduce rates, um, but the combination did with a number needed to treat of like 17. So mm -hmm. that's pretty good. So um, now, so it, it, the progress trial, um, it showed benefit in patients who were diagnosed with hypertension and patients who were prehypertensive didn't have hypertension, which is why the guidelines actually say if they can tolerate it, even if they haven't been diagnosed with hypertension, go ahead and get them on either a thiazide, um, you know, less uh, hydrochlorothiazide. We won't talk about that now. Um, or uh, an ACE plus a thiazide. Yeah. Um, that being said, the mean blood pressure in the prehypertensive group was 136 which if you listen to podcast episode one, that's actually considered Te technically high blood pressure. Right. Now. That's high blood pressure <laughs> now, one now because she had a history of stroke, which means she has clinical ACVD. Yeah. She has, um, hypertension. So that's a consideration, but you know, I, I 
thought those were interesting and maybe could be a consideration for her depending on what her blood pressure is going forward. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Indapamon. It also should benefit in patients 88 to 100 years old in high vet, mm-hmm. um, but it's got calcium channel. Did you? I don't know if you said this already. I didn't. It's got calcium channel blocking properties as well as being a thiazide diuretic. So I'm a big fan of that one. And it's on the $4 list. So yeah. Hint, hint. Cheap. Provider in the room. <laughs> yeah, buddy. But um, yeah, the last little thing we'll do, then we'll end on this is the, uh, she does have osteoarthritis. So I'll just mention this real briefly. She's on Tylenol and it seems to be controlled. Um, if it wasn't controlled, this would be somebody you have to be really careful with as far as NSAIDs, obviously, for mm. blood pressure. Now, uh, one of the questions would be whether or not we could use Celebrex. And some people may point to the data from the Precision trial from last year, year and a half ago, something like that, uh, that compared the uh, Celebrex to naproxen and ibuprofen. And it didn't show any, because the worry was that Celebrex had cardiovascular risk. Um, especially in patients that were already at risk. Um, and so the patients with uh, either osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, um, at the end of the study, there was no there was no definitive risk but amongst the groups. And um, they said that Celebrex had better GI um, side effects. So the only issue I have with that is naproxen also didn't have any cardiovascular events. It actually had a little bit better pain reduction. And the side effects that were because they lumped everything in and said serious GI side effects. If you actually look at the supplemental data, uh, the only side effects in the GI system were, uh, const- I think it was constipation and then um, iron deficiency from a possible GI origin. Um, those are the only two, but like bleeding and all those things like that were not significantly different between the two. Um, and the other thing is the Celebrex dose that was used in the osteoarthritis group uh, was probably a little bit lower than we typically would see uh, rheumatoid arthritis was a little bit more, but they were grossly underestimated in this, in the study, as far as the patient populations, I think it was like 95% to 5%. But um, I'm a little hesitant to believe that there's that because the meta-analyses, things like that have showed us that there's a potential risk still with Celebrex and cardiovascular disease. I still possibly would lean maybe towards naproxen if I had to. Um, but I would also maybe look at using topicals with this lady, like uh, cap- capsaicin, to um, deplete substance P in the hands and hopefully help uh, help reduce some of the inflammation. Or even like Voltaren gel, maybe? Yeah, even Voltaren gel. Topical yeah. NSAIDs would be great. Awesome. So. Well, cool. I did just want to make a small disclaimer <laughs> before we finish up this case. So um, if you were listening really closely at the beginning, you may have heard reference to the patient having a heart valve replacement or having diabetes. We're going to pretend that she doesn't just for the sake of time. Yeah. Um, we, 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 we originally, when we made this case up, we originally made this like way longer than we thought it was going to be. And we're already <laughs> like, you know, well over an hour. So, uh, but thank you for to, still listening. Yeah. If you're still here, we like you. Thank you. Yes. And not, <laughs> unless you're making fun of us. Then we don't. <laughs> no, but, I still um, like you. It's okay. Steve, man, thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy. It's Friday night and you're hanging out with us. I love it. Could be out goofing around partying instead talking about meds. <laughs> I think it's Friday night, nah. right? It's Friday is night. it Friday? Yes. I didn't get a is it Friday? Friday. I've it completely Friday. lost track of my days. <laughs> no, so glad that you guys invited me in. It's really cool. Love yeah, what man. you guys do and love learning and keep doing what you're doing. For sure. Thanks for coming on, man. So make sure you check them out if you're on Instagram. And if you're a pharmacist, it's pharmacy student, please, please, please do me this favor, especially if I've provided you any sort of value in my content, please go follow him at page the PA. Um, I promise you he will give you 
value as well and is you can definitely learn a lot uh like we said throughout the whole podcast we really want to encourage interprofessionalism so go reach out to your pa colleagues and make some friends um steve yeah, anything else come you say, hi. say or anything else uh yeah how else can people contact you if they need to or you want them to <laughs> Uh, I mean, I have, a, I have a little website. It's nothing fancy, but I've got some contact information on there. Um, it's just pagethepa.com. Nice. Pretty standard. Um, yeah, come say hi. I love reaching out and meeting new people from different um, professions and disciplines. And I think it's one of the best ways to learn is just to, you know, chat and do things like we're doing right now. Heck yeah. Hanging out on a Friday night talking about meds. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. We'll catch you next time. All right, guys. Thanks. See you, bud.